Well, all right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there I would encourage you to check out. Follow the show on Instagram at Here Comes the Pain Pod. That's at Here Comes the Pain P-O-D. Follow me on Twitter at P-A-Y-N-E-D-C. That's at Payne D-C. This is a shorter but a quicker post-debate uh, version of the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I figured it might make sense to offer some quick thoughts and some takeaways from what we saw earlier this week with the first presidential debate. It's been given a lot of names, uh, everything from uh, the end of American democracy to a, you know, mom cover your ears, a shit show, to everything in between. And I think there are a lot of things to react to. I wanted to spend some time talking a little bit about how to think about this debate from the standpoint of what were the objectives for both campaigns um, and what were the key takeaways from what we saw in the debate and what to look forward to going forward as well, not just with the next two Trump v. Biden debates, but also the next debate that's going to be coming up, which is Kamala Harris versus Vice President Mike Pence, which will be next week and I imagine will be a very different feeling debate than what we experienced earlier this week. But let's start with the objective. So, you know, when I think about what both candidates and what both campaigns wanted to come into the debates doing, I think there are some pretty simple objectives that that both sides um, had. I think for Joe Biden, Look, if you did a word cloud about what his campaign is all about and what he wants to emphasize with every public moment, it's decency, it's compassion, it's competence, and it's unity. I am a good, decent person. I have compassion for what you are going through in part based on the life I've lived. I am competent. I've been in government for a long time. I'm experienced, steady hand at the wheel. And I can bring people together. I have a history of, of you know, underscoring and, and, and um, you know, promoting unity. I understand how to work with Republicans. I understand how to bring disparate parts of the Democratic base together. That's the Joe Biden case. And so I think his objective were to stick the landing on those points. And then also more acutely on the issues, there was one key issue that I think Joe Biden really wanted to focus on and that's coronavirus it's the reason why i'm doing a podcast from my living room right now it's the reason why there were less than 100 people in that debate hall and why people were wearing masks in the debate hall and why uh, you know neither candidate is doing the full campaign trail traditionally the way you would normally see it done and it's because of coronavirus it's the reason why people aren't able to go back to work and their kids haven't been back in school for months on end and it's, it's coronavirus right that was joe biden's charge was to execute the case against Donald Trump on coronavirus. And I think for Donald Trump, given the fact that it's clear he had no designs on reaching out to the middle and reaching out to new voters, his purpose was to heat up his base, to get them excited about voting for him, but also to remind them of why they supported him four years ago, which was not because of his personal affects. For some of them, that was right. Some people in that Trump base like who Donald Trump is and like his style and his brand of politics. But for many of those folks, those kind of nervous Trumpers, some of those Republicans who I like to call sometimes Trumpers, they had to be reminded about judges. They had to be reminded about deregulation, about tax policy, about all the goodies you get, even 
even if you don't like Donald Trump, right? All the stuff that you are, are willing to sacrifice the morality of your party for in order to get. And so he had to remind them of that. And also, contrary to what Joe Biden wanted to do, he had to avoid coronavirus talk or avoid blame related to coronavirus talk. I think those were the objectives for both of the campaigns. And I'd say across the board, look, um, and th there are a lot of, you know, object, you know, uh, adjectives and descriptors I could use for uh, Trump's performance. Obviously, um, he was a train wreck. He was just, you know, out of this world. I mean, interrupting Joe Biden um, virtually, it seemed like on every answer, interrupting the moderator, not allowing any flow. I mean, to call it a rugby scrum would really be an insult to rugby scrums. I mean, that that was um, out of control. It was chaotic. It was hard to follow, even for someone like myself who does this. I've worked on num a number of presidential campaigns. I've worked um, in government and in the political advocacy space for a long time. That's just not something you're used to seeing, particularly you're not used to seeing it from the president. If anything, you might imagine, well, that's a challenger who is going to do that, right? A challenger who is trying to shake up the race and to shake up the narrative. They're going to do that. Not an incumbent president who has been in office for three and a half years. But here we are. And actually, that kind of gets me to my first point, which is I think that Donald Trump is trying to frame this race as Joe Biden is the incumbent and he is he is creating Joe Biden not only is this incumbent but as this wild lefty you know super far left not just progressive but all the way far left of the mainstream of where most of the American public is he's a socialist he's all of these things I think Donald Trump has tried to create this caricature of Joe Biden and it just hasn't stuck to this point and I think it's clear to me that Trump is just married to this notion that he can create the candidate that he wants to run against, right? That, I mean, and he did it even to a certain extent with, with Hillary Clinton. I think it was a little easier to caricature her because she was less popular and because there were such strong opinions set in negatively about her. It's a different story with Joe Biden. And it's so funny because Donald Trump is given credit of being this, um, you know, this non-conventional politician, right? This politician that does things his own way, that does not follow uh, the, the years and decades of precedent and, and convention. Well, Donald Trump is doing about the most conventional stupid thing you can do right now, which is he's trying to rerun the race from 2016 again in 2020. He thinks he can do to Joe Biden what he did to Hillary Clinton. Historically, that does not happen. The country changes so quickly the world changes so quickly four years ago we didn't know about coronavirus we didn't know about all of the things that we would experience under this president we didn't know that the economy would go up and then come all the way down and crash we didn't know that people wouldn't be able to send their kids back to school donald trump is running as if He's running in the world that he entered, the political world that he entered in 2015. A political world, by the way, that was exceedingly set up for any president to be successful economically because of the hard work that Barack Obama and Joe Biden did to, you know, save the country from a recession, which is what they inherited. So Trump can kind of step in to that as the president, but he can also, more importantly, or maybe just as importantly, he can step into that as a candidate. 
He doesn't have to run on serious issues and offer serious solutions to a country that's afraid. In fact, I think he caught our country with our guard down. And Donald Trump thinks that he's running the same race that he ran four years ago, and he's not. It's a different world. There are different dynamics at play. And he's running against a very different candidate than he ran against four years ago. So that's one takeaway is Donald Trump just has not come to grips with the fact that this is not the same race. Like he can't do the same stuff. I mean, look, as a Democrat, I'm completely fine with him, you know, vomiting all over himself and making himself seem so ridiculous and so out of touch and driving away more voters. Like I got no problem with that. Um, you know, the election day can't get here fast enough if the president will continue to, you know, be the one man, get out the vote machine for Democrats. Like I have no issue with that whatsoever. But from a pure political science standpoint, it just makes no sense. And it there's a reason why it hasn't been done. And it's because it doesn't it, it's just it belies logic what Donald Trump is doing. That's one thing. Another thing is Donald Trump is behaving like somebody who knows he's going to get his ass kicked. OK, and I say that very purposely in blunt terms, because if you look at all the trend lines across the country, right, and look, polls are what they are. And I know people are afraid to to trust polls after what we experienced three and a half years ago. People don't believe that polls give us an accurate reflection of what folks are feeling. I think that polls have a place in our political chattering world. Um, I think that you use polls to look at trend lines and to measure sentiment broadly. I don't think you use them as a predictor of day of vote turnout, but I think you do use them as an accurate portrayal of where the country is moving and what the general trend lines are. And right now, the general trend lines have been Donald Trump is cruising to a historic beatdown. And I think we're all waiting for these stubborn numbers that have Joe Biden nationally anywhere from 8 to 11 points ahead of, of, of uh, Donald Trump, depending on what poll you believe in, what methodology you follow. Nationally, it's 8 to 11 points. In a number of key states that Donald Trump won, it's upwards of 5 plus points. I mean, you look at a state like North Carolina, and I've got a lot of connections to that state as a state that I grew up in. Um, I worked on the John Edwards campaign in Chapel Hill. My family, my parents, and my two brothers live in that state. I know North Carolina pretty well. I have a lot of good friends there in North Carolina. And I will tell you, you know, it's Donald Trump's on the ballot, but also Roy Cooper, the governor, is pretty popular, is on the ballot. And Cal Cunningham, who is a very Joe Biden-like candidate for Senate, is on the ballot against Tom Tillis, who is the incumbent Republican. And if you look at the polls in that race, that race looks absolutely disastrous for Republicans and for Donald Trump. North Carolina is a state that Donald Trump should really be able to kind of have in his back pocket. And I saw a poll just in the last week that had Donald Trump no closer than 10 points in North Carolina. And that had Kyle Cunningham up 10 plus points, had the incumbent Tom Tillis under 40 points. Now, again, that's a poll. That's not a it's not a direct election day predictor, and it would be a mistake to suggest that. But that polling is pretty consistent with the direction that we've seen that race going in. Okay, let's look at some other things. Let's go to South Carolina, which is obviously anybody who knows anything about, um, you know, the, the electoral map and red states and blue states. South Carolina is one of the reddest states in the country. Okay. Lindsey Graham is in the fight of his political life right now against a very impressive 
Democratic challenger and Jamie Harrison. Now, my disposition the entire time has been that Jamie Harrison is going to run a hell of a race because, one, he's a super smart guy and he's super um, talented. He's well-resourced. He knows D.C., but he also knows his home state of South Carolina and he knows the issues that matter there. And I thought he was going to run a strong race and he was going to scare the hell out of Lindsey Graham and it was going to be a less than five-point race, which is amazing. It's kind of like Beto closing to within five points of Ted Cruz three years ago or rather two years ago in Texas. I think that's an equivalent. That race right now is neck and neck in a way that I don't think anybody would have ever imagined Lindsey Graham, a loyal lieutenant of this president, loyal to the point where he has disgraced his public image and disgraced himself and thrown away respect and friendships across the aisle and completely um, just been emasculated by this president, right? Lindsey Graham is in essentially a 47-48 tie with Jamie Harrison. Jamie Harrison is pummeling him with fundraising and with ads in state. And people think about money as kind of like, oh, well, you know, you're just going to dump a bunch of money into a state to go and overwhelm the other guy. Th the reason why you can dump a bunch of money and overwhelm somebody is because there's so much energy against them and because the race is within risk. Let me tell you something. If that race wasn't up for grabs, that money would not be flooding into Jamie's campaign. So the fact that Jamie is able to raise that money and immediately transfer it to uh, very slick advertising, a very strong advertising campaign that Lindsey Graham is on TV begging for money so he can stay at parity with, okay, on Fox News and on OAN and places like that, begging for money essentially every day. That's remarkable. But let's just look beyond Lindsey's numbers. President Trump's numbers in South Carolina, he's running basically even with Joe Biden. Now, my expectation is that Donald Trump will likely win South Carolina. I think I think even the most uh, bullish, the most positive thinking Democrat would acknowledge that South Carolina would be really, really difficult for a Democrat to pull off. OK, in the general election and in, in, in Joe Biden to pull off. But think about the money and the time. Donald Trump is going to have to spend time in South Carolina to batten down the hatches. He's going to have to spend money, which has been mismanaged, by the way. OK, on his campaign, he's going to spend money that is in short supply, that is disappearing in a state like South Carolina to defend a Senate seat that he shouldn't have to defend and to defend electoral votes that he shouldn't have to defend. And I could go all around the map and do the same thing. I looked at Cook's uh, political um, report, their ratings for races, two races that I just saw today that moved in the direction of Democrats. Dan Sullivan in Alaska, that's a safe Republican seat. OK, and Alaska's not quite as red, I think, as people would assume, but it's pretty red. That's a safe Republican seat. Dan Sullivan is a pretty unremarkable Republican senator, but someone who's quiet enough to kind of slide underneath the, the glare of the sun without attracting too much attention and attracting too hard of a challenger. That race went from lean, from likely Republican to just leans Republican, which means that that race is within punching distance now. OK. I'm not even embarrassed to tell you, I don't even know who the challenger is there. That's how catastrophic this is for the president. Go to Colorado, Cory Gardner, Republican incumbent, putting up a relatively good fight up until the last couple of weeks. You're now seeing some distance put in that race. You're seeing 
John Hickenlooper, who's the very popular former uh, Democratic governor of that state, who is Gardner's challenger, he's starting to put some distance there. I think you might even see a scenario where Republicans have to make hard decisions about whether to even spend money there. This is a long drawn out way of saying Donald Trump is getting his butt kicked. He knows it. The polling demonstrates it. The down ballot impact demonstrates it. And so the reason why you get him like a raving lunatic on stage earlier this week and you get him saying crazy outlandish things about Hunter Biden and um, Bo Biden and terrible, awful things and lies, making up lies about some left wing vote stealing conspiracy in West Virginia, because we know about that sophisticated Democratic vote stealing operation in West Virginia that exists. Right. OK. The reason why he is like a stark, raving, mad lunatic is because he is about to get his ass kicked and he knows it and he's aware of it. And so I think that that's another thing that I took away from this debate, that the president right now, I believe, understands that he is on the brink of a historic beatdown. And I know that the Democratic boogeyman is going to come get me because most Democrats are afraid to actually say that out loud because they think it's a jinx and Frankly, I think it's probably a little bit of a jinx, too. But um, at this point, 30 days out, like it kind of is what it is. But I think it's true. I think look at the numbers, look at the environment, look at where people are in terms of, um, you know, kind of uh, what we've seen with early vote and what we've seen with people talking about uh, their excitement and their intensity in, in, in terms of their, um, you know, their desire and their intention to vote. It's 15, 20 points higher on the Democratic side than the Republican side. So now Democrats have the intensity edge along with the early vote edge. And you've got the, f the full catalyst behind this machine, which is Donald Trump every single day, alienating more Americans and firing them up to vote him out of office on election day. OK, a couple other things real quick, a couple other takeaways. Um, and I know that I've spent a lot of time bludgeoning Donald Trump here in you know, the last 15 or so minutes. But let me tell you this. I don't think Joe Biden did himself a lot of favors in that debate. Now, look, he had some good moments, and I've been very impressed with the Biden campaign team. They've been very good about taking those good clippable moments from Joe Biden and putting them up online, putting them on Twitter and ginning up a lot of engagement and using them to raise money and using them to, um, you know, to advance narratives and to keep the conversation going and to really expose him to new groups of voters. He had a couple moments like that. I thought that his response related to um, both of his sons, Bo and Hunter, were, were really good and really powerful and compelling. I actually thought one of his best policy answers was what he talked about in relation to the health care law and pointing out that the president um, has you know, been in court trying to strip this fundamental right away from Americans. I think he also executed a really strong case um, for why the Obama-Biden years were so good in terms of the economy and pushing back on the nonsense from Trump and Republicans about how this is the, the economy pre-COVID that was booming was a result of their work and really was the result of about 10 years of hard work going back to the beginning of the Obama years, right? Back in 2009 where we were all trying to keep the economy from like falling off a cliff, right? I think Joe Biden had some good moments. I did he did, he did some some things like that that really did do well in the aggregate. And I think his campaign team is smart enough to figure out how to get in front of enough voters. And I think that'll serve some benefit. But I don't think Joe Biden did himself 
every favor he could have. And, and it's not because the president kept interrupting him. And I, I look, I certainly think I would hope that the former vice president is able to kind of figure out in a debate setting how to continue his train of thought without being distracted. Um, I, I'm saying that acknowledging that he was on stage across the hall from a stark raving mad lunatic, right? Like, I get that. I don't even like the whole, you know, pushback about the moderator, Chris Wallace, that somehow he was supposed to do something. I mean, really, what would you like him to do? Would you like him to walk up and put Donald Trump in a sleeper hold? Like, you can't, I mean, you know, what, what do you expect the moderator to do? I mean, he, he repeatedly admonished Donald Trump. He tried to get him to shut up. Like, there's only so much you can do when it's the president and his opponent and you on stage and there's a microphone and there are rules that are agreed to. Okay, so I, I really think we're probably a little bit too hard on Chris Wallace, but that's beside the point. But look, I, I give Biden the appropriate caveat that he was in an unprecedented situation. But I think the biggest problem that Joe Biden created for himself is with the left. And here's why. Or, or what, what I don't even think calling it just with the left. I would just say the part of the party that's been, let's just say, a little Biden agnostic or a little slow to warm to Joe Biden, you know, which is essentially the left, but it's really the kind of the, the progressives and some of the mainstream progressives, people who frankly wanted a different candidate in the primary and who had to be talked into Joe Biden, which there were a lot of, and I'll be honest, I'm one of them, right? When he stood on stage and said, I am the Democratic Party, when he says things like, I beat Bernie Sanders by a lot, when he dismisses the Green New Deal. And by the way, I, I understand politically what he was doing and why he felt compelled to react in that way. But I think what the, the, the Biden camp has to be concerned about is those things really did play into the president's hand because I do think it had the potential to create some real problems for Joe Biden with that part of the party and the part of the coalition that is always going to be a little harder to wrangle. And I don't really think that if you're the standard bearer of the Democratic Party, you want to stay on, stay on, stand on stage, excuse me, and have to declare that, quote, you are the Democratic Party. I mean, just to be honest about it, I don't know how many Democrats think of Joe Biden as like the most, you know, the, the, the biggest uh, representation of the Democratic Party right now. Like, I think most Democrats understand what the duty is here and what the job is on election day in some 30 days or 35 days. But I don't think most Democrats are so behind him that you can speak with that kind of reckless disregard for the many folks in your party and the many folks in your coalition that you know disagree with you. And I'm saying this as a Democrat who fully intends to vote for Joe Biden, not intends to, who will vote for Joe Biden and who um, looks forward to Joe Biden being president and being able to uh, get this maniac Donald Trump out of office, right? I have no qualms about that. But Joe Biden has to be careful with those politics. I think that was the biggest problem he created for himself in that debate. And I think that's something that the campaign and his debate prep folks have to work with him on is how to assert yourself without asserting yourself. So much of politics is between the lines. There's a way you make that point without alienating people. And I think the former vice president fell a little bit short there. I think there were some other small little gripes I could point out from Joe Biden's perspective. There are certainly things he could have done better. I, I talked about the constant interruptions and how he allowed that to ruin his train of thought. Um, I, I don't believe he 
played too much into the storylines about his age and about you know some of the ugly things that the Trump campaign have been trying to push about whether or not he's up to the job. I think Joe Biden acquitted himself pretty well. Um, look, if you if you think Joe Biden is too old for the job, there was nothing in that debate that either dissuaded you from that or would have gotten you to be like, oh, you know what? Joe Biden's actually like young and virile. Like if you already thought that, you were going to continue to think that uh, regardless of what happened in that debate. So I don't really know if there was any any new ground cover. And I, and I think just kind of the final takeaway is I don't really know if the fundamentals of the race changed. First, I don't I don't really know if debates have winners and losers anymore. Like we have high leverage debate moments from our recent history that we can go back and we can point to and we can say, you know, this happened at this moment and um, it changed the direction of the race. Usually those happen in primaries, right? Um, it was um, some of Donald Trump's, you know, opponents in 2016 when like Marco Rubio basically eliminated himself with some of his terrible debate performances, particularly when Chris Christie essentially signed like a murder-suicide pact with uh, Marco Rubio to end both of their campaigns by falling on a sword and just, you know, just destroying both missions, right? I remember when that happened. And Marco Rubio completely, um, you know, really you know, blew it in, in that race, um, or rather in the, at, at that debate in, in the middle of that race. I think that there are some other historical examples of where candidates certainly didn't acquit themselves well. But I think there's less than, a, maybe on one hand, you can count less than that many times that a debate has really, like, fundamentally changed a race. Obviously, Dukakis in 88, with his answer related to the death penalty when Bernard Shaw asked him if um, his wife was the victim of a violent crime, whether or not he would support the death penalty, right? Like, there are a couple examples like that. But really and truly, you know, far and wide, that's not going to be... The debate is not the venue where people choose their candidates. And I would, I would argue, even in those circumstances, those moments were not the... They were not the thing that really destroyed those candidates. They were a continuation or they were an accelerant to other things that were going on like the I would argue that those campaigns were already um, on the way down and they were tailing off they weren't on the ascent when that happened they were on the descent and so I think the debate kind of accelerates the descent but I still really don't believe we're in an era where there are winners and losers of debates okay so all that said I think that debates call things out they clarify things they elevate storylines um, they solidify notions and ideas in the minds of voters. And so I think, look, what came out of this debate was most voters knew Donald Trump is nuts. And even his supporters knows he's nuts, right? Like that's, that's not new information. There was nothing new that came from that. Most voters knew, and I know this is the first time I'm bringing this up and it might shock some people. This is the first time I'm bringing this up, but you know, the whole issue about him and the comment about the proud boys and you know, white supremacy. I think most voters know Donald Trump is sympathetic to white supremacists. That's not new information. I did not need Donald Trump to give a cryptic message to the Proud Boys to think that Donald Trump was sympathetic to white supremacists. The cake is kind of baked on that. I'm not saying that as a credit to him. I'm not saying that as an excuse to him. I'm saying that to say I already had that information. That, that, that was not new information to me. I, I, I remember Charlottesville. I remember shithole countries. I remember um, 
you know, the reporting out of Mary Trump's book and out of Michael Cohen, uh, out of Omarosa and folks like that in, in the Trump orbit who have since, um, you know, <laughs> come to the other side, right? Who have talked about how the president talks about uh, non-white people, people who aren't his race. I remember how he started his damn campaign by calling all Mexicans rapists. I remember how he treated the Khan family, okay? I mean, hell, the night after the debate, he went to Minneapolis and started talking about Ilhan Omar and started saying horrible things about her and then saying horrible things about all Somali immigrants, not even realizing, just a quick aside here, by the way, it's funny to me that the president doesn't even realize that Minneapolis loves its Somali-American community, just like Dearborn, Michigan loves its Muslim-American community. I went to college in Providence, Rhode Island. There's a very robust Cape Verdean community that's beloved, that's a part of the fabric of the city. We have a president who does not have an appreciation or an understanding for how those feelings exist within this country. He doesn't believe it, and he has no contact with people who can explain that to him and underscore that for him. So we knew these things about Donald Trump, right? I, the, the debate, sure, it gave us a moment to focus on, to talk about him making some weird stand back and stand by comment, which, I mean, the weirdest thing about it, honestly, was the inflection in his voice and how he sounded. It sounded like he was like barking out orders um, for people to like raid the stage. Um, it was That was the part that was alarming and that was scary, but I knew Donald Trump was a bigot before that. And I knew what Donald Trump felt about race and about the importance of racism and white supremacy in his movement and in Trumpism. And it's something, by the way, that anybody that votes for Donald Trump, they're going to have to contend with and they're going to have to deal with and they're going to have to answer for one day, even if it's not today and even if it's not Election Day. But anyhow, debates elevate those types of issues and debates really shine a light on those things. But I don't think debates are for winners and losers type stuff, right? Like, I don't think if Joe Biden would have had two or three knockout lines, it cinches the election. I think Hillary Clinton won all three debates four years ago. I don't think it really mattered on election day because guess what? The people who are watching, the people who are already going to vote for Hillary were just affirmed in their position. And the people who weren't going to vote for her were affirmed in their position. And the same thing for Trump. And that happened four years ago. And I think that's going to happen again now. We've got a vice president's debate that's coming up next week where it's going to be obviously Vice President Mike Pence versus Kamala Harris, the Democratic nominee. I think it'll be a very different debate. I think that the two opposing objectives there are for Mike Pence. He is going to try to advance this narrative that Kamala Harris is like the secret. I don't know if she would be the Trojan horse or Joe Biden would be the Trojan horse. But, you know, she's like the secret infiltrator, you know, on behalf of the left that's going to go and make Joe Biden into this like wild socialist, um, which again, just demonstrates to you like how little Donald Trump knows about things about people who criticize Kamala Harris for her record as a prosecutor and for some of her public statements and for her brand of politics. There's a lot of people on the left who don't like Kamala Harris because of that. So to try to use that moment for Mike Pence, what I imagine what he will do, what Donald Trump has tried to do to try to elevate that, that just demonstrates they have no message because there's nothing that would suggest that Kamala Harris is that. But I imagine that's what Vice President Pence is going to do. I imagine he will also do his Mike Pence thing, which is try to present himself as like a decent Christian man and as the uh, Christian 
you know, uh, Christian evangelical validator for Donald Trump. And I imagine he will have a modicum of success with that. He'll probably bring some Republicans home. But there will be no new voters brought into the Trump coalition because of Mike Pence. I think what Kamala Harris' objective is to do, and maybe to a certain extent, maybe better than what Joe Biden was able to do, maybe she'll be given more time to do it, is to really execute the case against the Trump-Pence administration on coronavirus. And I think it will be easier for her because Mike Pence has played such a central, pivotal role in the coronavirus response. He was elevated as the head of the task force. He was very publicly the face of the administration's response for at least the first, you know, I would say six to eight weeks until the president decided he was getting jealous. I'd actually think what's funny to me is that Mike Pence was doing, and please take this the right way, he was doing a pretty admirable job of presenting a good face on the coronavirus response. I think there were clearly some misses and some shortcomings um, that were already starting to set in early on. And I think you can question his decision making and, and his stewardship of the response. But I do think that the country felt better about getting those daily briefings from Mike Pence than Donald Trump. So he is very much publicly associated with coronavirus. And I think Kamala Harris will use that as an excuse to execute that case against him. And I think it'll be interesting and it'll it'll, it'll probably not be quite as bombastic. I don't imagine that Mike Pence will interview uh, rather interrupt Kamala Harris 73 times like Donald Trump did to Joe Biden. But I imagine you'll get some sharp contrast, but it will be done differently. Mike Pence will be on stage with a woman, a, uh, a black and Asian descent woman. Those things won't wear well on him if he tries the same tricks as the president. And I think obviously Kamala Harris has her own challenges. She will have to demonstrate that she can execute that case. She will also have to dem uh, defend herself against some of those erroneous attacks about whether or not she's too uh, too far to the left and um, out of the mainstream, which obviously she's not, but she's going to have to do that. And I think she'll have her own challenges in doing that. So that'll be an interesting discussion as well. So just a little bit on the debates there I wanted to share. I want to end with kind of one what I would call almost like an open question that I've heard asked a lot on Twitter in passing, just rhetorically, you know, you watch TV segments, etc. And, um, you know, obviously I, I do a lot of television. I was on CBS this morning, the morning after the debate, um, giving debate reaction. But you'll hear a lot of people ask the question, is this really who we are? particularly in response to what we saw with, the, the again, the rugby scrum, the shit show, whatever you want to call it, with the Trump-Biden debate. And they'll say, is this really who we are? Aren't we better than this? And I don't mean to be a downer, but like, yeah, this is who we are. Like, have you been paying attention? Like, and I'm not just making that as a statement because Donald Trump was elected in 2016. I mean... I'm old enough to remember when people were marching around the Capitol with like open weapons, you know, talking about Tea Party and, you know, were taxed too much because Barack Obama had the audacity to be black and to be the president at the same time. Like, yeah, this is who we are. I mean, my first political memory is of my father being crestfallen because he was convinced that Jesse Helms was going to lose. Jesse Helms, of course, is a Republican. He's now deceased, but was at that time a Republican, longtime Republican senator from North Carolina. 
very much associated with segregation, um, white supremacy, kind of old school Jim Crow style politics, right? Okay. He was the senator for North Carolina when I was born. He probably, um, gosh, I, and I should know this off the top of my head, I think probably some 25, 30 years served in the Senate for North Carolina, or at representing North Carolina in Washington. And he had a real challenger in 1990. I was six years old, seven, seven years old by the time of the election in 1990. And his real challenger was a guy named Harvey Gantt. He's an African-American gentleman. He was mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina. His daughter was a very popular news anchor in the city. Harvey Gantt was kind of, you know, like an older Barack Obama type figure. And I'm not just saying that because he's a black politician, but I'm saying that in the, in the kind of crossover appeal that he had. Very popular, good, broad base of support. And there's this thing in politics called the Bradley effect. And I call it the Harvey Gantt effect because that's how it impacted my life. But the Bradley effect is essentially when the the polling and kind of what the public opinion, you know, the science of it might suggest is a closer race ends up being a blowout because people are lying and polling and they're not sharing their real attitudes. And it's usually based around race because this usually happens in a, in a campaign where there is an African-American um, candidate, either challenger or an incumbent, and there is a white establishment figure who might be, let's just say, racially controversial, like Donald Trump in 2016, and like Jesse Helms in that race, and like when Tom Bradley ran in um, the 80s for governor of California when he was LA mayor, when he ran, where there were all these race politics in the air swirling around California, where that race going into election day, I believe it was probably like a neck and neck race, maybe less than five points. And that's just not how it turned out on election day. And anyway, so my earliest political memory, my dad was convinced Jesse Helms was going to lose to Harvey Gantt. And I would often joke about how if I was, um, you know, political pundit Joel that I am now, 30 some odd years later, I would love to go back and have a conversation with my father and be like, Dad, I don't think it's going to work out for you the way you think it's going to work out. I say that jokingly because, look, obviously he's a Republican in a state like North Carolina. He's got high name ID, deep support. It, it almost is like a legacy election at that point, unless Helm said something that was new and outrageous, like people were going to vote for him. But regardless, there was this very strong challenger. And he, my father, and so many people, not just African-Americans, but, but it was primarily a lot of African-Americans were just devastated by the fact that Harvey Gantt lost to Jesse Helms. He ran a great race. He had a broad base of support. He was an African-American that, you know, take this the right way, could be sold to different populations of the Democratic coalition effectively. And the race politics of the state just didn't allow it at the time. And I go through that long diatribe because just back to the question of like, is this who we are? It is who we are. That's who we were then. It's who we have been for the last few decades. And it's who we are now. It's who we're trying to not be. At least some of us are trying to not be. But as long as there is a political incentive to keep the race politics going the way it's been going for such a long time, that is going to be who we are. We are always going to fall back to those old tropes of racism. So when you're thinking about Donald Trump calling out the Proud Boys or just acting like a lout on stage, 
and just being all of the worst manifestations of like American excess and faux American exceptionalism. Like there is American exceptionalism, but it damn sure don't look like Donald Trump. And Donald Trump representing all of those things and representing racism, xenophobia and, you know, white grievance politics the way that he has. You bet you he is who we are. And our mission in November is to vote that out of office and to close the door on that. And I will tell you, the numbers would suggest there's more of us than there is of them. But if you're asking me right now as it stands, is this who we are? You're damn right, it's who we are. And that's what we've been fighting the last three and a half years. And that's what's on the ballot come November 3rd. So that's just a little thought to leave you with. Appreciate you joining me for today's episode. A little shorter than normal, but figured I'd give you some quick debate reaction. We'll be back in a few days with another fresh episode. We'll keep an eye on what's going on in the world of politics, and we'll look forward to keeping the conversation going. Thanks so much for joining. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. Have a good one. God bless and good night.